All right. Hey, everyone. Uh, thanks again for joining us on The Last Question, Season 2, Episode 5. Uh, I am excited today that uh, Jim Warner, Executive Director of the Association of Air Force Missileers, uh, agreed to talk with me. Um, I reached out only a few days ago, I think less than a week ago, and we found a time on Sunday afternoon to meet and to talk. He's wide open this afternoon. I'm wide open. I'm sure uh, one of the kids upstairs screaming will probably call me up before he gets called out to uh, his Florida exterior. But in any case, this should be a good conversation, and I'm really excited to have you with me, sir. Uh, how are you doing Sunday afternoon? I'm doing great. Uh, glad to be here. What is the weather like down there? We've, we talked a bit before the recording, but just for the record now. Uh, today, it's uh, about 81 degrees and sunny. 81 degrees. <laughs> um, in central Ohio, it's 52, I think, right now and sunny. And that for us is pretty glorious since it snowed yeah. yesterday. Yeah. Uh, big snowflakes and it's middle of April, but okay. Um, and you said you're in Florida permanently. I'm in Naples, Florida. Moved down here about three years ago. Uh, okay. Got to the point where I just didn't like the cold weather anymore. And here we are. And do you, and you had mentioned, which I did not know, that the AAFM directorship and potentially all of the leadership positions, I don't know, is a volunteer position. So it's, so it's not as if you're a paid employee of the organization or anything like that. So what else occupies your time? Do you have another job full-time part-time do you do anything still air force related or not or i just retired uh this last year um i was working for booz allen hamilton as a consultant yeah. uh, back to the air force um it, if later we talk about uh the new sentinel i i've uh, been a contractor to global strike command helping them develop the requirements and do all of the analysis uh leading up to uh the execution of that program yeah, absolutely. I do want to get to that. One, one of my last jobs in the Air Force, well, my last job uh, was the director of, uh, of ICBM requirements at Air Force Space Command. And so uh, that led right into my uh, my job at Booz Allen. I've been doing a lot of the same stuff that I did in uh, my Air Force career uh, as a contractor. But uh, to your previous question, yes, uh, AAFM is a nonprofit organization and our entire staff is... Uh, me um, and a couple of the volunteers and the board of directors, they're, they're all unpaid positions. So uh, we're in it because we believe in the ICBM mission and the people who uh, have served and are serving. And uh, we want to carry that message forward. Okay, awesome. So I think first things first, I would love it if you would just share a bit about your, your origin story. So to the extent you're comfortable, where did you grow up? What was childhood like? In particular, what led you to the Air Force? What led you into nuclear weapons? Um, and then, if if you could give us, uh, you know, the distilled version of your career, it's it's going to be it's important, of course, to understand the experiences you had. In particular, if you had experiences with systems that, you know, a lot of people might not even know we had at the time, um, it would be good to set the stage, and then we can go from there. I grew up in a small town in Western Massachusetts called Sunderland. It's at the at the foot of UMass Amherst. Um, I, I grew up in a, a, a construction family. My, my dad and his brothers owned a road construction company. Um, and uh, my dad's theory was that if the kids wanted to work uh, for the company, they needed to go get experience elsewhere. So um, 
uh, I went to Holy Cross College in Worcester, Massachusetts. And in my freshman year, and we're talking 1970, give you how, how, an age, okay. idea of how old I am, uh, height of the Vietnam War. Uh, I met, a, I met a, a guy there who is still a friend today, uh, who basically said I didn't have the guts to uh, put on a uniform and wear around the campus as part of ROTC. And being wow. uh, okay, <laughs> being young and and, and a, a daring guy, I, I took the challenge and I went down and uh, joined ROTC. Uh, and then four years later, uh, graduated and was assigned in ICBMs. Um, I went to Rapid City, South Dakota, Minuteman Two. Okay. Um, got there two years after the the big flood of uh, 1972, which destroyed half the city and and uh, so i found rapid city to be a very small town with very little stuff at the time it's completely different today if you go back it's a beautiful oh, yeah. city mm -hmm. uh, but in in 74 there wasn't a whole lot there um and i and i quickly uh learned to uh to love the job and the mission um and uh uh, became an instructor, uh, uh, a uh, back then an Olympic arena competitor. Uh, so I was gung ho um, uh, uh, missiles. And then I was uh, engaged and, and thinking about getting out of the Air Force. And I got a call from my uh, uh, chief of training and said, hey, they want you to go to Vandenberg to, to schoolhouse. And I had a weekend to decide. Uh, my dad said, hey, job's here when you want to. Uh, so we went to Vandenberg. My, my, my brand new wife and I went to Vandenberg. And uh, that led to another assignment uh, back at Ellsworth. Um, I was one of the first guys to, to fill in the instructional systems development position, which, you know, we talk about the way scripts are written and evals are done today. Mm -hmm. Back in the 70s, things were gutless. I mean, the, the, the eval guys, we're looking for the uh, the problems to put in a script, regardless whether they've been trained or not. And and ISD in 1978 was the first time that we actually said, "Hey, we have to train to a set of objectives and then evaluate to that set of objectives." Right. And Something so, we take for granted now. Yeah. Right. Right. But but before '78, it was it was a wild place and. Um, and so I look at how things have changed over the years, and I, and I say, boy, you guys, you got it good. And I mean that in a good way. I, I mean it in a good way. In yeah. that, um, you know, there is structure to it and purpose to it. Uh, and we really are trying to take care of our crew force and make sure they're, they're the best trained and ready to do the job. So I, I did that. I went to uh, uh, 15th Air Force after that. I, I was the uh, exec officer, the wing commander at Ellsworth. Um, and then um, uh, back to, down to 15th Air Force, and and there is we were talking about this uh, before we uh, started. Uh, I got a chance to go to to uh, Glickham, the ground launch cruise missile, um, and I went on a one year remote uh, tour to uh, Florin, Belgium. Now you say remote tour Florin, Belgium, uh, and the, the only difference there was uh, that if you went to Florin remote, you went uh, by yourself without your family. Right. Or if you brought your family, you did it at your own expense, which I did. Um, and so I spent a year helping bring that mission up to uh, uh, full capability and pass the 
uh, INSI and NSI, and then they brought uh, weapons onto the, to the base. From there, I went to Cheyenne, Wyoming. Um, I was the ops officer in the 320th. Uh, nice. Yeah, I thought you'd like That's that. Big Red, then, yep, I'm a Big Red alum. I appreciate that. Yeah, uh, and then um, uh, Chief of Training, Chief, Chief of Stan of Al, and then I had a great opportunity um, at that time, the ops group commander was a, uh, a pure maintainer, a missile maintainer uh, named Mike Jackson. He called me in one day and he said, uh, said Jim, I've been watching you. I, I think uh, I want you to be a maintenance squadron commander. And my stupid response was, but sir, I've been focused my entire career on being a, a, an ops squadron commander. Yep. He said, well, think about it. So I went home and talked to my wife and She's a smart one in the family. And she said, did you just turn down command? And I went, oh. <laughs> and uh, when you, you put know, it that way, it sounds pretty dumb. Went, yeah, you're right. Went back the next morning and said, uh, ready to serve. And, and, and so I got a chance to, to uh, spend two years as a, uh, uh, facilities and then uh, organizational missile maintenance squadron commander. They have since combined those two squadrons into one big maintenance squadron. But um, I had a uh, couple hundred people under my uh, under my command at the time, and and I learned a lot about ICBMs that I thought I knew and learned that I really didn't know uh, okay. by getting exposed to the maintenance side. <clears throat> and then uh, from there, I went to uh, that's when now we're talking 1993. Uh, uh, SAC that's gone. TAC had uh, ICBMs for a year. They moved. Uh, missiles to space command. And I was part of the first uh, increment to stand up uh, uh, maintenance in, uh, in space, uh, space command for ICBMs. And then uh, got promoted to uh, uh, Colonel, went to the Pentagon um, and spent uh, about two and a half years there. Um, and I was in the uh, SAP AQS, which is the acquisition side. I had no acquisition experience, but uh, they needed a, a colonel to lead the division. And I had a bunch of really good acquisition and, and uh, missile guys to, uh, to do that job. So uh, got a big exposure to the acquisition world. And, uh, and then uh, had an opportunity to go back to Space Command to be the director of ICBM requirements. Uh, Back then it was DRM. Today it's A5I for those who uh, are following yep. in, in organization at Global Strike. Uh, and then uh, it was uh, the fall of 2000 when they told me I was going to uh, move one more time. And my son was a senior in high school. And I said, no, nope, I don't think so. And so 27 years in the Air Force. Uh, I uh, signed off and then uh, took a couple months off and then got a job with Booz Allen Hamilton uh, as a consultant working ICBM stuff. And I did that for 20 years. So uh, 47 years of ICBMs and uh, I signed off and uh, took on this job as the uh, executive director. Unpaid position, but it fills, it can take as much time each day as I want to give it. Sure. Uh, I can I can let it go a couple of days or I can spend eight hours a day. There's just that much to do and, and to help the organization and to help ICBMs. Okay, so they so 
of course, I have several follow-up questions, and and AAFM, I definitely want to get to. I'll I'll try to though go in some semblance of an order. Um, okay. So both for the missileers in the audience and and for everyone else, can you talk a bit about what the Glick Emission was? Um, I guess where it came from. What, what why is it that we don't have it now? Perhaps. And, and just good what, question. Uh, what so is it? Yeah. Glickum ground launch cruise missile. Um, why it wasn't an army mission is beyond me. Um, but, but those Air Force guys who got to do it and, and got to play army, so to speak, loved it. Um, it was um, a cruise missile uh, launched. Uh, there were four missiles in a canister in a, in a transporter rector launcher at Tell. Um, and uh, a launch control center, which was a big box on the back of a, uh, a trailer. Um, and and it, it was a, a, a nuclear mission and its job was to disperse uh, out into uh, various areas uh, in uh, England, uh, Italy, uh, Belgium and Germany and the Netherlands uh, and be prepared for the short range uh, nuclear strike against uh, the Soviet Union. Uh, it was fielded by Ronald Reagan for the sole purpose of breaking the backs of the Soviet Union. And it did that. It was to, to get them to uh, reduce their short range tactical uh, nuclear missiles that were uh, aimed at, at Europe. And so Reagan figured uh, we could go in there, put in this mission, threaten the the uh, the Soviet mission. It was it was USSR at the time, mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and and it, it worked. Uh, and in 1988, uh, they they signed the uh, uh, um, I want to say INF treaty uh, and uh, agreed to take down. Uh, the, the US systems and the equivalent uh, Soviet systems uh, deployed at the very edge of, uh, of the Soviet Union. So the, so the mission in, in broad terms, the mission was to go after Soviet formations in Eastern Europe. If the war kicked off, this, these were short range, what we now call non-strategic weapons. So this was- That's Correct. Correct, okay. Uh, how many, and you said, how many did we have total? Do you remember in terms of active units or active? Um, I, I can tell you active units. I can't tell you a number of weapons or, or, or um, launchers. Uh, we had bases uh, in uh, uh, the, the tip of Italy, in, um, in Belgium. We had two bases in England, uh, one base in uh, Germany, and one base in the Netherlands. Okay, and, and you were right, by the way, the Intermediate Nuclear Forces, Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty went effective June 1st, 1988. Yep. This weapon system was around less than a decade altogether. Yeah, yeah. And designed but, really, and, the, and a similar story goes for the Peacekeeper, really designed with one purpose, to bring the Soviets to the, to the negotiating table for a particular in this case for INF and, and in the later case, I think for start for the first iteration of start. Yes. Yeah. So, okay. Um, I'm curious actually. So for those of what year were you remote to Belgium for the Glicka mission? Uh, 
I got there in November of 86 and left November 87. When you so we were we were just getting to full capability, which led to the negotiations that started in January uh, to to bring the uh, the system down January of 88. Okay, so that so that's interesting. I'm curious, what is it like? Because we had conversations like this in the Minuteman world, probably conversations that you've had and or heard of where, you know, one of the biggest fears among missileers, at least when I was around, was longevity of the career field. Nuclear weapons is unique among military weapon systems. GBSD will eventually phase out the Minuteman 3. And so there were all these questions that, frankly, none of us could answer, especially when I was still in the field prior to 2017. And questions like, what's going to happen? Are we automatically going to get to certify? The The story is we're going to need fewer crew members. And so to reduce the footprint means to reduce the number of humans. So what was it like joining a Glickham unit? Did you know that Glickham was going to come offline less than two years later or would have to come offline less than two years later? No, no, we had no clue. Uh, because like you said, it, it took almost a decade. So uh, th- I think they... They started uh, the Glickham uh, initial training and and development back in the late seventies. So all those people that were you know working towards it, they didn't see it as uh, as a negotiating tool. They they saw it as a mission that had to be accomplished, and and they all went uh, to the mission expecting that there was a career, whether it was to come back. I mean there. There were some that went there, young crew members, second lieutenants, that that was their first crew tour. Right. That's all they knew. And they they finished that crew tour and they went to Minuteman afterwards. Uh, Some stayed in Europe. Some went to other bases. um, You know, some went out of the missile uh, business uh, altogether. But um, no, we we didn't go there with the understanding that it was going to be a drawdown right away. So then once the treaty is signed, the, the period perhaps between, it says December 8th, 87 to 1st of June, 88, what is that like? So, so because you're not a Glickham purist, perhaps you weren't privy to all the conversations, but what is the buzz like, um, if any, in, amongst a community of, of people whose weapon system is, is being shut down with, correct me if I'm wrong, no replacement? Right, so it's not like there's a follow-on system. We're getting rid of intermediate-range weapons altogether. Well, I, I really can't answer that question because, I, as you mentioned, I, I left a week before those negotiations started. Okay. Uh, when I left, the system was, I mean, I a guy came in, took my place as the ops officer. He intended to be there a full three years. Um, he, he had no clue what was going on. None of us did. Uh, within Department of State to uh, negotiate negotiate away that system. Uh, but I, I will tell you, you know, the, the people working the assignments worked hard to uh, to take care of every one of those missileers and uh, bring them back uh, if they wanted to into uh, Minuteman Three. Um, when I was, uh, I went to Cheyenne after that, and uh, we got quite a number of, uh, of folks that came from all those bases. Uh, as uh, new crew accessions uh, at, at F.E. Warren and all the other bases. Was that transition difficult for people between Glickham and ICBM oh, or yeah. back? Is that a difficult switch? Uh, 
in, in my role as, as a major and as non-crew member, it was just another uh, great assignment. But for the for those young folks that that served on crew in Glickham and then had to come uh, uh, and start all over and learn a brand new weapon weapon system, one where you went from as a as a Glickham guy, uh, you know, you were. You were F-16 qualified, uh, yeah, not, not M-16 qualified, not F-16. Right. Uh, M-16 <laughs> qualified, you, you wore camo. Uh, you know, these are the days before uh, BDUs uh, by crew members. Uh, I mean, when I went to, to, uh, to Belgium, that's the first time I owned a pair of BDUs. Uh, all those guys were mm -hmm. deployed, certified to deploy to to camp out, to bivouac, so to speak, to protect their assets. Uh, so they were really more Army guys than, than Air Force guys. And then you bring them back into, uh, as an operator in ICBMs, a two-person crew, uh, where all you're doing is, is and I, I don't mean that in anything but the, the best way, but the job is completely different. And some of those guys struggled with, with that a lot. But they learned, hey, I'm in the Air Force. I got a job. I'm going to do it right, and you know, and and just transition like you do in any other job. Yeah. So it's definitely, I mean, maybe 180 degrees in terms of work environment from, yeah, deploying in the traditional sense, camping out, protecting the tail. Presumably, you would exercise it, so you would go on maneuver, even in a training environment. It, 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 uh, right. Once a month, we would send a flight uh, about an hour away from the base uh, in a full convoy, security forces, um, comm relays, the whole nine yards. Uh, you know, we uh, the, the tells, the crews, and they would uh, uh, head down in, in case in Florin, we'd go down to the Ardennes Forest. Uh, the Belgians had a training base down uh, uh, down there, and uh, we would send them uh, out into the woods, and uh, they'd circle the wagons, dig, dig their foxholes, and uh, put the camouflage net up and, and operate for a week in a, a tactical environment. Okay, I think I have one more, because something else came to mind. Um, when you're in the field, then, so what's, what's the expectation? If it, if it becomes real... And if those units see combat, what is that environment going to be like? Assuming they get their weapons off the ground, are they expecting to return? Is there a recovery plan? Is there a reconstitution? And I ask this because, you know, in, in at least in my time with Minuteman Three, we trained uh, we trained the procedures for incoming weapons and to receive what a new debt, which we might still call it that, right? A nuclear detonation on or near the MAF uh, in the complex. What do you do? How do you prioritize tasks? Literally fighting fires if they're lighting up around you. Um, and then one of the running jokes among the community is, you know, in our tech data, we had an escape procedure that you would theoretically use to get out of the capsule everything after everything had quieted down. Um, we'll leave the merits of that procedure to the side for a minute. But for a Glickham person who's out in the open and who's shooting non-strategic weapons, who could be, in fact, first to shoot ahead of us or perhaps behind us, depending on how the how the war starts, what do you what is going to happen? What are you trained to think is going to happen versus what do you actually think was going to happen? 
or did it come up at all? Oh, it, it came up. Uh, there were procedures in place. The flight commander, uh, who was a major, uh, was uh, um, his his job was to a protect his team, b make sure they launched when required, and and c uh, pick up and boogie to uh, another rally point uh, and be prepared to to launch again if necessary. So. It was all about survival and the ability to fulfill the mission. Uh, a flight commander would carry a package of um, maybe up to a dozen uh, pre-coordinated classified uh, uh, high points and aim points that, that they could target from. Uh, he carried um, um, uh, financial uh, instruments to, to uh, uh, help him uh, buy fuel and, and other things necessary if he couldn't get support from the base. Uh, but at the same time, the base had uh, the, the ability to, um, to support that, those guys remotely, uh, you know, to bring them things to from wherever they are. Uh, so it wasn't There's troops. just- a, There's logistics yeah, troops logistics, for that security, type of- Okay. Um, the whole nine yards, there, there were guys uh, on standby ready to support that mission wherever they went. Financial instruments, that's a good way of putting it. Um, so what about when all of the, well, let, let me ask this, where, so you said he, he or she, the flight commander carried a target package of sorts, aim points and hide points for the convoy. So whose authority was required to select a target where the targets provided at a particular yes. state of the conflict yeah, just, or just, yeah, just like, um, uh, just like the, uh, uh, strategic plan that you operated under when you were a crew member there, uh, you know, you get, you get, uh, classified messages that direct you uh, into a certain target, um, package, um, and and the flight commander and his crew members couldn't execute that package without the appropriate uh, um, authenticated messages from national command authorities. So they, the they weren't out there just on their own. They right. Th they couldn't launch any quicker than uh, than you could, given direction. Right. Okay. They um, just had a shorter flight time. And then right, and then. What would happen or what were the possibilities after all the weapons had been expended? What was the procedure for after they're, after they're out and all the canisters are expended? You know, I can honestly say that I, I can't remember the answer to that question. Um, I, I was, the short year that I was there, we were focused on, on uh, bringing the flight up to operational standard and, and getting certified to deploy. And then I left. I knew there were plans in place. I just never got to it in my job. Okay. Uh, because as the ops officer, uh, as opposed to the commander, uh, I was more focused on the people and making sure they had everything they needed to do. They needed to do the job right. Uh, you know, were they trained? Were they uh, emotionally fit? Were they right. mm -hmm. ready for the job? Uh, were there problems at home? You know, uh, I, I worried more about that. The commander worried about, you know, working with the logistics guys and the comm guys and the maintenance guys and, and the wing commander, et cetera. Okay, yeah. And then the 
an owning wing commander, how many of these units, I mean, was, was your unit in Belgium attached to a wing or was one wing responsible for multiple units across multiple countries? No, uh, we had a wing, the 485th Tactical Missile Wing was there at Florin. That was the wing, okay. They had one operational squadron that had three flights. Um, and then there was a, a maintenance, so un, under the ops group, one operational tactical missile squadron, uh, a maintenance squadron, a comm squadron, a med group, uh, et cetera. But the wing commander was right there. There was a wing commander uh, at, uh, uh, Wundstrick in Germany. Oh, no, Wundstrick was uh, Netherlands at, uh, oh boy, time is getting me here. Uh, but I'm making you dig back, at, I know. <laughs> yeah, there was, a, there was a wing commander at each of those locations, two in England, one in the Netherlands, one in Germany, one in Italy, one in Belgium. Okay. Okay, so now um, we'll, we'll jump ahead. What is that, about three years, maybe three to four years. Um, because I, I absolutely would love for you to talk us through what it was like as, well, the next year or year and a half when the wall fell, and then as the Soviet Union starts to collapse. Um, and I'll, I'll make this question even, even bigger or broader, what it was like when President Bush takes bombers in Minuteman 2 off alert. I've, we've, some of us had seen copies of that message that, that our senior commanders had kept as, you know, in archive. Um, and it was pretty incredible even for us to see a copy of a message telling us to take an entire force and an, an entire part of the ICBM leg and all of the bomber leg off alert, uh, really with one order. So I think the period between 88 and 92 would be fascinating, certainly to live through. Next best thing is if, if we can ask you to just retell from what you remember what it was like particularly in the nuclear world at the time. Yeah, it, you know, it's, um, when I came, uh, came on active duty in 1974, we had 1,054 missiles uh, on alert, 1,000 uh, Minuteman and 54 type. Uh, Atlas had, had long ago been retired. Um, and, uh, and then in one fell swoop, we went down to 500. We took uh, uh, we took Ellsworth and Whiteman off alert, just like that. I mean, they they safe their missiles. The, the message you're talking about, right? Uh, took the bombers off alert and safe the missiles at at those two bases overnight. Um, for the folks at at at, at the ninetieth where I was, um, it was business as usual. Uh, because the wing commander made it very clear that while we just lost uh, almost 50% of our alert force, um, we still had a job to do. And you and, were Minuteman 3, correct? That uh, was why? Or They were Minuteman 3 at, at F.E. Warren. Right, yeah. okay. Um, back in those days, the squadron commander and the ops officer were not uh, crew qualified. Uh, right. So we... We went through uh, a, a period of time, uh, and, and it, it's fuzzy in my memory. And, and when they were, when a, when a squadron commander was really alert, qualified like they are today, uh, or partially qualified, that where they went out with uh, a, a, a full crew, a two person, so they were the third person on a crew. We, it took us a while to get 
from one place to the other. Um, it's interesting in 1986, the summer of 86 is when the 15th Air Force commander decided uh, there was an incident that happened and I don't remember what it was uh, where uh, his staff was briefing him on uh, his missile squadron commanders and 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 uh, General Light was uh, James Light was a 15th Air Force three-star uh, and he learned at that point that, that his he knew his bomber squadron commanders were alert qualified but he had did not know to that point that his missile crew commanders were not and uh, the summer of, of 86 was when we started training our squadron commanders to uh, to get back their their crew status. Um, but I think it was a good 10, maybe 15 years or more before it really became uh, a full blown, no, we mean you to be alert ready as a squadron commander. Um, but anyway, I, I, that's off on a different that's interesting. subject. Well, yeah. Um, but but uh, it was very clear to the, the folks at, uh, at Malmstrom, Minot, and Warren that while the other bases were closed, the mission didn't change. Um, we were gonna have a smaller career field. Uh, we were gonna have some people out of work, uh, but for those who had a job, there was a job to do and it wasn't any less important. Probably, probably even more important now. Uh, and, and there was probably, uh, I learned to, I went to maintenance in 91 uh, the need to keep a missile on alert because there were fewer in the target package mm -hmm. uh, became very important. And, and we probably chased more alert time back in the early 90s than, than they had done for a while uh, because the, uh, the guys at, at uh, Strat Command uh, had a smaller number of arrows in their quiver to use for targets. Uh, if you talked to Omaha in one of your last uh, uh, right, yeah. podcasts, Theoretically, uh, the target list didn't get any smaller, but the number of yeah, arrows did. That's exactly true. By a lot. How you, how you continue to to hold all targets at risk with fewer uh, bullets in your gun uh, made their job harder, and but but didn't reduce the uh, emphasis of the of the the three wings that that picked up the bulk of the load. You know, so for those Minutemen two crew members. What happened? How, how does a career field, how does the Air Force reduce a career field or, or I, I guess continue a career field in a sustainable way when, as you said, about half of it, 50% of it essentially disappears overnight? What do you do with those people? Where did they go? What were the options at the time? Do you remember? Well, a couple options and, you know, and it's, it's an argument that we're going to face into the future with with uh, the Sentinel, right? Uh, with GBSD, because um, uh, we're we're probably going to reduce the number of launch centers. Um, we're going to uh, reduce our maintenance footprint. Uh, we're going to do a lot to impact the career fields, and and I know that uh, the folks I know that are at Global Strike are are working through through those issues and briefing leadership on a regular basis on how we're gonna survive. The good thing for a lot of missileers, and, and I, I'm still debating whether this was a good thing or a bad thing, but um, 
when missiles went to space in 93, uh, for a lot of guys that opened a, a whole different path. Uh, and and uh, space became another uh, opportunity, another career path, uh, because it, we, it, we were space and missile ears, not just missile ears. Right. Uh, my problem with all that is the type of thought pressure, thought process you need for a missile ear, and the type of thought process you you need for uh, a space operator are two different things. Mm -hmm. um, one is very checklist focused and the other is very engineering problem solving focused um and uh and the, and the two didn't necessarily mix but a lot of great missileers got a good op opportunity to move on and and uh and and go be space guys jay raymond uh who's the head of uh the space force today, the cso he, now he's right mm -hmm. he's a missileer yep started off in the right place yeah, in fact, a lot of senior space operators, you, you still notice basic missile badges yep. underneath their ribbons, right? Which gives you a sense of where they started, probably. Yep. Um, well, so so I have to ask then, and you said you retired in 2000? 2001. May of 2001. May of 2001. Think back, folks, to what the world was like in May of 2001. Um, well, so then what's what's your assessment looking back on the marriage between space and missiles? Do, do you think it was net positive, net negative? Do you have an opinion either way? I, I think I remember some individuals when we got to 2012 and the official divorce, as some of us called it, and our, our AFSCs changed and we, um, let's see, that we stood up Global Strike in 2009, I think, 2010. No, 2008, yeah, somewhere in there. Somewhere like yeah. that. I, I arrived at Minot with Space Command patches on, and then very quickly the, the buzz about Global Strike happened. And then I remember distinctly in 2012 when the the AFSCs and all of the you know HR personnel related things kind of caught up, if you will. Anyway, long way of asking, um, what's your assessment looking back on that marriage between space and missiles? Um, good thing, bad thing, or neither? That's a good question. Um, I, I, I think, I'll put it this way. I think we made it work. Um, okay. I don't, uh, if, if I were the four-star in charge, the chief of staff of the Air Force, not the commander of Air Force Space Command, um, and I knew what I knew as a missile leader, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have put the two together because uh, it, what I said earlier, yeah. The difference in the way things were approached uh, as a space operator, even today, the um, compared to the the discipline, and it's a different type of discipline. Not saying that space operators aren't disciplined. Sure. But we are dealing with nuclear weapons. Two different mentalities. And, yeah. Yeah, and and it's two different mentalities. Um, I found that when I was at Space Command as a, uh, you know, as a as a senior officer, um, just the way we looked at problems was different, and so for for the young guys who were looking for multiple avenues, uh, once they finished crew, it, it was a great opportunity uh, for the development of the career field. Uh, I think it was a disaster. 
And, um, and, and I think we paid the price for a number of years. So then now fast forwarding, um, attached to Space Command till the 2009, 2010 timeframe, we're still attached to each other as 13 Sierras. I was a 13 Sierra Corps officer until 2012. Um, and then we were still in the cross flow mode for several years after that, because our career field, of course, has a, has a large bulge in the CGO period or in the CGO range for for what should be obvious reasons, right? We need a lot of crew members to, to meet the footprint that we currently have. So as you've watched the evolution of the career field, not just through your active duty time, but then post as uh, a, a supporting team member at Global Strike and at the match comms through Booz Allen through your time as a contractor, what's your assessment of the career field and crew members now to the extent that you've been able to interact with them and, and prior to leaving you, so you were around during FIP, you would have been around and involved somewhere during, correct me if I'm wrong, the 2014, the news at Malmstrom, losing all of the commanders that we did, all of the drama that ensued. So as, as you've watched this continuous evolution from a somewhat outside view, but still heavily involved with the organization, what, what's your take on where we've been and where we are right now on the cusp of now standing up a new weapon system in the next 10 years or less? Um, I, I will tell you, I learned more about FIP in the last year in this role as uh, uh, for AFM than I, than I knew about when it was happening. Um, when I was a contractor supporting Global Strike, working A5I requirements, working the analysis of alternatives for GBSD and developing all the requirements and writing the ops concept and things that would, you know, in, in a couple more years uh, really have an impact. Uh, I really was disconnected from the operational unit. Um, I got my first chance in almost 15 years to go to all three wings uh, last fall. Uh, and it was my first real contact with, with the crew force in, uh, in, like I said, in almost 15 years. And I, I'll tell you, um, I was impressed. I was impressed with with the the people, with the attitude, uh, with their their energy. Um, I was revitalized to know that that the same attitudes for a different reason, uh, the positive approach to getting the job done uh, was there. I, I, I met people who were you know as soon as I get this tour done, I'm out of here. Right. I, I met those guys too. They'll always be um, that subset. Yeah, of course. They're, they're all there. Sure. Um, any job is like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I met a lot more that were, you know, asking about what's GBSD going to be like? What's, uh, you know, what are the opportunities at, at, uh, at, at the program office, at the SPO, at the Nuke Weapon Center, at Global Strike, uh, Stratcom? Where, you know, where can I go? What can I do? Um, and, and, and so I, 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 was, I was very pleased. I, I missed... I missed the whole FIP uh, because I was focused on supporting a client and, and not staying engaged with the community. I, I regret that, I missed a lot, but um, quite frankly, most everybody, unless you're uh, within that immediate structure, don't get to see that. They don't get exposed to it. Um, you know, it's, it, it, which is sad because um, the, 
the lessons that we learned, uh, again, something you, you said on your last one with Omaha uh, really hit me that, that some of the new commanders coming in might not have, that didn't experience what happened during FIP might understand the lessons learned. Right. And, that, and, that, and that's sad. We, we have to make sure that people understand why we made the changes, what was different, uh, and make sure we don't go back to it. So I remember, you know, I was at I was at Warren in 14 to 17, really at a period where we the A3 community almost literally put all of the balls in the shredder and we were starting from scratch in a lot of ways, which was like anything else, a double edged sword, a very liberating period, but also a rather scary period, particularly for senior commanders who at no point did our alert requirement stop. Right. But we were we were building a new airplane while flying it, yeah. uh, as the saying goes. So yep. why do we? And I remember as I left the assignment uh, in seventeen, we talked a lot. My commander, my DO, our flight commanders, crew members that had been around, especially well, ones that had grown up in the quote unquote old system and transitioned, crew members that had grown up only in the new system. You know, I, th I think everybody had some sense that we were we risked backsliding, but no one yeah. could, no one really could could articulate how it would. We figured some extent of it would be commanders who had been at schools or on the East Coast doing whatever other assignments, assignments that are all part of the system normally would come back to the wings and and like you said would be out of kind of out in the cold and then coming back in from the cold to a totally new world. Why do we fail at maintaining those lessons? Why would why did we fail? You think at Matchcom, not sharing what presumably the A three folks were talking about on a recurring basis with the folks that are building the new weapon system, where ideally you would be able to incorporate some of that, whatever those lessons are, into building Sentinel, so that we don't cycle back again and make some of the same mistakes we may have made in ninety two ninety three. With yet or with yet another career field drawdown, why don't we do that? And I'm asking you to, for your opinion and and certainly to some extent speculation, but you're certainly as well qualified as anyone to speculate on on why that's a continual problem. Well, I I, I think you asked two separate questions there. Um, I, I will tell you that the guys that worked on developing uh, the the requirements for the system and, and how it should operate and, uh, and what the crew force was gonna look like uh, did so with the understanding of the problems of the past. Uh, and so I, I think you'll see that, it, that you build the best that you can with the, you know, with the, with the best intent, but how you implement it then becomes the the people problem okay we we can't go into it unfortunately because money is always a, an issue mm -hmm. we can't go into it saying listen the pyramid needs to look like this and as a result you got to have x number of crew members as bottom to ensure you have x number of, of general officers at the top um, instead what you really have to do is say What's it take to operate a weapon system? Not what's it take to maintain the career, career field. And then it's up to the, the A1 guys to figure out the, the personnel folks to figure out 
how do we maintain a career path? Um, you know, they do it in special operations all the time. Mm-hmm. You just have to, you have to, you know, buckle down and, and make it happen. And, and I know the guys that are working at, at, at Global Strike A5I today that are working this pyramid issue are working hard to ensure there's a place for everybody to go. It, they don't want to slide back. They don't want, uh, you know, we don't need the rifts of the, of the uh, late 80s that we experienced because the Air Force had to downsize and missiles had to downsize. And, and I mean, we kicked a lot of guys out of the Air Force that, um, you know, that, that we shouldn't have had to. Right. Um, back to your previous question, I'm, I'm now reliving the 88 uh, riff, uh, 88, 90, 91 uh, riff that we went through where yeah. uh, I saw some great staff officers that, um, that, that left the Air Force. I, I had this one guy, Jimmy Gregory, who I, uh, he was my chief of scheduling and, and man, I thought he had a career in the Air Force and he was in the wrong place at the wrong time and he got ripped. Um, but that's a, that's a bigger picture uh, item than, you know, are we doing it right in ICBMs? That's, a, that's an Air Force personnel policy issue that this guy is, is not capable of answering. Okay, well, that's, that's a fair answer on the personnel front. What about on the operations front? So it, we also talked about backsliding in terms of, you know, a, a lot of, frankly, the trust and authority we gave crew members in the, in the 2014, 15, 16 timeframe was, I, I would say, in some cases, leaps and bounds beyond what I had even in 2009, 2010, right. 2011. Right. And, you know, and incorporating the ability for crew members to leverage to leverage their knowledge in making decisions when they were outside of the checklist, which in the old days, even in my day, when you were outside of the checklist, the default answer was to to make phone calls and to yeah. ask permission. Yeah. And we were trying to transition leadership and crew members both to being comfortable with, in some ways, asking for forgiveness and making a decision that they could justify as technically feasible safe from a wizard nuclear perspective, but viable for that moment so that they could keep the operation going. So as we were trying to, to figure out what kind of cultural change that would require, what we feared and, and feedback we got from field grade officers who were not at the wing was some of the same kind of tropes that we would often hear. Crew members are getting dumber. We got to bring tests back. You can't give them that much freedom. The checklist is the checklist is written the way it is for a reason. Yes, it is, of course. Um, so, so I think that's another thing I think about when I hear that, you know, somebody in A five, for instance, didn't get exposure to what FIP was. So how do we, and, I, and I'm not saying these are things you could have accounted for writing the requirements for Sentinel. You 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 you're talking about a different set of requirements. You're trying to build the system how we build the operational culture is a different problem. But as somebody who spent more than two decades in operations and working with unit culture all the time, how, how do we not, how do we keep that momentum going? Especially if, as you said, you've met with crew members in the last year. And if you were by and large impressed with them 
and they seem like folks that you would trust to continue doing this mission. How do we keep ourselves from getting back to a world that I grew up in and plenty of my former commanders and DOs grew up in, which was very, well, it, it, we kind of overuse this term, but in some ways it was just straight up toxic. Yeah. So um, I, I mentioned this up front when you asked me uh, a little bit about, about my career, but I, I didn't probably didn't stretch it enough. I spent the majority of my Air Force career at the wing level. Um, and and that, that was rare for the people that I know that got promoted to Colonel. Um, I, I spent a lot more time away from the, I, I didn't go to headquarters until I was a, a, a Lieutenant Colonel. To, to the MAGCOM. Yeah, that is rare. Uh, and, and, yeah. And, and that's, in those days, that was very rare. I think uh, with, with the second crew tour um, and a lot of other things and, and, and fewer, uh, uh, fewer missile billets that have to be filled around the Air Force, I think we're seeing more people doing that, getting back to the unit. Um, so it, if you make um, if you make uh, lieutenant colonel, and the first time the the last time you were at a unit was as a young captain, we have a problem. Okay, but if but if you were there as a as a young crew member, uh, as a senior captain, as a mid major, and you come back as a squadron commander as your fourth assignment, uh, or fourth or fifth assignment or whatever, then you stayed in touch with the crew force the whole time. So go to the MAGCOM, come back to the unit. Go to the Pentagon, come back to the unit. Go to STRATCOM, come back to the unit. That's my answer. Um, there, there are fewer billets, so we need the, the guys in the, in the DO and the, in the command positions, uh, the ADOs, uh, you know, the, the, the deputy group commanders and group commanders. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so we need to do more of that, in my personal opinion. Um, I know the Air Force has looked at, um, and there was some discussion and got killed about combining the ops and maintenance career fields. I remember that. Um, yeah. And and, and I th I thought I thought that would have been a perfect opportunity. Like I said, when I went over as a lieutenant colonel, my eyes were open big, and and I wished and I looked for opportunities uh, to grab crew members and bring them over as as. Uh, uh, you know, branch OICs, um, officer in charge, uh, to actually lead young airmen and, and, and get the, some of that leadership under their belt and, and learn that, that uh, leading uh, a two-person crew and uh, a 35-man shop is completely different. Um, I think we need to do more of that. that you know, that, that's, and, and I, I think as you look at, at a, a decreasing crew force in the future, mm -hmm. Um, that that's going to have to be one of our potential solutions. But again, don't do your crew time or even your second crew. And the next time you come back as a, as a squadron commander, um, that's not going to do the unit any good because you spent more time away than you have. And you just forget what it's like. More Right. But more than twice the amount of time you spent as a crew member are now spent whether you went space in the old system or you stayed nukes, but, but went to various staff positions, right? You spend more time away than you did where the rubber yep. meets the road. So is that on someone's radar as we, as we walk 
I would say, consistently towards Sentinel, which we already know the, the manpower footprint will be smaller. So then the, the, the argument or the, or the visual I have in my head is by definition, the number of billets in a peacetime environment, for instance, the number of billets will go down. A squadron might be smaller, is my assumption. If that's the case, and the three squadrons at a wing are smaller, and there's by default fewer ADO, DO command positions, fewer places for field graders to go, especially the young, the young types, the young field graders, and, and particularly the majors who are kind of, you, you know, already in a weird spot as far as Air Force is concerned, because we're, we're, we're old captains, we're not yet lieutenant colonels, and sometimes people just don't know what to do with us. So is that on the radar? Do they, do they realize that that's probably, that's probably a problem that's going to require solving once we go operational with Sentinel at Warren and elsewhere? I think they've been, yes, they, they have been working on this problem for probably about four years or five years now. Um, our, our first manpower IPT uh, stood up about four years ago. It could have been five, somewhere in that, that, that time frame. Uh, they stood up a training IPT and they stood up a manpower IPT at the MAGCOM uh, where they bring the AETC guys in, they bring the Air Force manpower guys in, depending upon what the IPT is. Uh, these teams have been addressing and trying to resolve uh, a path ahead uh, well before the first uh, missiles ever placed on alert. Okay. What it's going to look like, I can't tell you. I, right. I don't know. Uh, but there's plenty of smart people that, that have learned the lessons that we're, we're talking about today that are chiming in uh, and, and trying to have an impact. All the way up to General Cotton. I, I've talked to, to uh, General Cotton a number of times and, and he's very sensitive to this problem. Um, he, he, uh, he knows he's got um, a, a, a good group of people he's got to take care of. That's mm -hmm. a four star in charge of Air Force Global Strike Command. Um, uh, and, um, uh, uh, and, and he, you know, he keeps a, a very close tab on what's going on in the, in the A5 world, uh, that that's going to answer these problems. How far away from, from deploying Sentinel at its first wing are we? I think, think I, I could be off by a year, uh, because it depends on whether the program stays on track, but the, sure. the initial plan was the first missile to go on alert, uh, ladder 27, early 28. First, first missile, missile on, on alert. Silo. First missile on alert, potentially five to six years from now. Yeah, and that means- Not a long time. That means launch centers built, um, crews trained, maintenance guys trained, um, you know, everybody ready to put that missile on alert, just like we did with Peacekeeper. I mean, I want to say, uh, and I was at, I, I got to F.E. Warren in 87, Peacekeeper went on alert 86, if I got it right, somewhere in that time frame. But they had, when I looked at the, at the, the story behind it, they had pulled crews off the Minuteman force two and a half years before the first crew was trained to pull an alert, was, was certified to pull an alert to work all of the, uh, the, the human factors stuff, the training documents, the scripts, uh, all the things necessary to train and certify a crew force. They pulled those first crew members uh, out of the crew force, uh, like I said, two to two and a half years ahead of first alert. 
to become so they're, they're gonna be peacekeeper crew soon. members. Okay. Yeah, so so we could yeah. be two two and a half years away from Minuteman three crew members today. Um, crew members who would already be at the wings in some cases right. being pulled offline to become Sentinel SMEs and the first alert force. Yeah, I can't guarantee they're going to do it the same way as Peacekeeper. Sure, if we overlay the same, yeah. We use that as our model when we were doing a lot of determinations. Uh, And uh, they pulled the first cadre. uh, The first and second cadre, the first cadre came straight from Effie Warren. The second cadre came from the other two wings. Mm -hmm. And and those guys were PCS'd into uh, Effie Warren. uh, And then that was the 400th missile squadron. And so they, they, they basically pulled some guys out uh, of the 400th uh, out of all four squadrons to become that peacekeeper cadre. Uh, and then the 400th guys continued pulling Minuteman alerts in the 400th um, as, as they went through the modification process. Okay. So, right, like you said, no, no guarantees that it'll look the same, but certainly it's a good example of of how we've done this before, where we fielded a new ICBM in the same footprint, right? Because the 400th was a Minuteman unit prior. And then we modified the launchers and then we emplaced Peacekeeper. And I guess just on, there was a particular day where we would deploy a, a Peacekeeper certified crew in place of a Minuteman crew as the launchers turned over. This, this almost, this feels like an extended code change operation is, is what, yeah. it, is how it would flow, I suppose. Um, so they, they, they took, if, if I got my numbers right, uh, initially they took two launch centers down, uh, off alert. Okay. And, uh, they started with 10 launch facilities. They took a whole flight down, uh, and they could, you know, they did the, the conversion of those flights, but there were peacekeeper crews in those two launch centers, uh, ready to pull alert when the first missile was installed. Okay. So the the first sortie went on alert prior to, it, it wasn't like they installed 10 and brought the flight online at once. Each sortie came online on its own once it was ready. Right. Okay. So then, yeah, they you, built up to, then they built up to IOC and then they eventually, uh, which is initial operational uh, capability, which I think was 10 missiles mm-hmm. and two launch centers. And then F- FOC or full operational capability obviously was five LCs and, and 50 LFs. Do you remember when we hit FOC for Peacekeeper? I'm just trying to get a sense of how long that took. Um, I want to say it was 80, late 88, early 89. Okay, three to four years. Yep. Okay. Okay. It's going to take about three years per base for for right. uh, for a, uh, Sentinel. And this time we're converting everyone. Correct. This is a wholesale replacement. We're doing the whole wing, right? And all three, all, 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 all three wings, one right. wing at a time. So all four hundred and fifty right. launchers will eventually convert to Sentinel hardware, software, everything. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah. Okay. The, yeah, so the only difference is. Um, the number of launch centers may be less per wing than they are today because the construct, and, and we'll see if it, 
as it was developed, and we'll see how it, uh, it works when it was deployed, but you won't be restricted to a squadron of uh, connectivity. The entire wing will be connected. And, and you'll be pulling alert. You'll be monitoring from the base, correct? Is that still part of the concept? No, no, there, there is a, uh, an ICC. Um, and I just, oh boy, I forgot what ICC stands for, but, uh, it, you know, it's, it's, it's a control center, uh, integrated control center, which is the command post, well, job control, maintenance control, security control, transportation control, civil engineering, all in one building. Uh, as the go-to point, uh, there will be there, there should be, depending upon how it's deployed, crew members there for an operational point of view, but not no no key turn capability inside of that ICC. Okay, you can't execute from the base. And so then by extension, you, you won't be targeting from the base. You won't be transmitting critical software changes or whatnot. You would still be deployed to a capsule Oh yeah. in oh, some yeah. manner. Okay. Right. I remember one of the early concepts at the time suggested uh, you would be on alert on the base at the ICC in, say, peacetime states. And then at a particular point, we would push crew members forward, quote unquote, to where the LCCs are now. Yeah, kind of like we had the initial uh, rail garrison uh, mm -hmm. concept where um, where everybody was on base and then deployed. That I, I don't I don't uh, I don't think that got much traction. Okay. And uh, there are no um, there there are no plans that I know of. Uh, to, to, to go to that method. We're, we're, we're sticking with deployed launch centers and crews on alert 24-7. Deployed 24-7, okay. But but fewer launch control centers. Potentially. Is, is part yeah. of the footprint, okay. I, I think, you know, we'll have to see what the final deployment looks like, but but the concept going forward was to reduce the, the, the number of launch centers. Okay. Um, so as so as I look at the clock, we, we've been talking more than an hour, and we uh, and I can hear in in the back of my head a, a few people who I know are listeners who are wondering when we're going to get to the subject, the original reason why I reached out to you in the first place. So um, I'm going to make it an awkward of, of sorts transition and ask you about that. And there's and there's a couple of other questions I'll say for for after we discuss the the Cole Smith article. Um, okay. So. And did you get a chance? I know you said you'd listen to a couple of episodes. We talked a bit before I hit record. Did you listen to the Cole Smith interview? I did. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, so, you know, you know, I didn't even learn of his article until I read your letter. Um, I would get recurring like anyone else in the membership. I get recurring emails from AAFM. I am currently a, an inactive or defunct member, if you will. Um, but you know, when I saw the subject line defending the integrity of our missileers, uh, you, you know, I, I clicked on it because for whatever reason, you know, it stuck out. It wasn't something about the, the annual conference or, or a newsletter or anything else. Read the letter, then found my way to the Guardian piece, then read the Guardian piece. And then for whatever reason, knew this was a conversation that we had to, to continue having. So to start with, how did you find the article? Did you find it by accident? Did someone direct you to it? How did you come across it the first time? 
I got contacted by a, a member who had been discussing it with uh, uh, some operational folks at one of the units. I won't, I won't identify the unit, but it was, hey, Jim, you need to go check this out. Uh, uh, the, the crew force isn't happy. And, uh, and so I, I went and read the article and then uh, with uh, one of my fellow uh, uh, missileer, retired missileers, uh, we drafted the letter that went out. Um, I, I, going back to Cole's uh, uh, podcast with you, I, sure. I, I will say that I, I, I probably should have included a link to the Guardian article uh, on the letter so people could look at both sides. Uh, you know, that, that would have been smart on my part, lesson learned. Uh, and I appreciate you guys pointing that out. Um, the role of, uh, of the Association of Air Force Missileers is, is multifaceted. Um, it's, it's to retain the, the history and heritage of, uh, of ICBMs that goes back to uh, Atlas and Titan and Minuteman Peacekeeper and, and on to uh, Sentinel. Um, but it's also to educate the public on the role, of IC, role and importance of ICBMs and nuclear deterrence. Um, as you'll see in our upcoming newsletter, we've got a long uh, opinion piece written by uh, retired General Major General Don Alston on the need for nuclear deterrence and the triad, uh, because we want we want our members to be smart on the issue, and we want the American public to understand the importance of, of, of ICBMs. When I saw the title of the article, and I realize now that Cole didn't pick the title of the article, and I've, I've learned this over the years and why I didn't remember. Um, my, my first set of bells went off based on the title because it gave, it, it gave the reader, and I'll say the American public. Sure, the layperson, uh, certainly. The layperson, because yep. I, I don't care about what Europeans, London, you know, Englanders think about uh, this subject. I only care about what American people think about this subject because they're the ones that vote people into office that affect uh, our uh, our Defense Department, our our State Department, you know, and, and how we live as a country. Uh, I want them to be smart and understand the need for nuclear deterrence. Mm -hmm. And and so you see that, and the first thing you think is, we've got a bunch of unsafe weapons out there. Mm -hmm. And, and the fact is, Cole's done a good job of researching the Damascus tragedy, the incident. Right. Um, but that's a Titan II weapon system that hasn't existed for 40 years. Mm -hmm. And so the chance of a Minuteman exploding or, or causing its warhead to be discharged or any nuclear uh, detonation, as I wrote in, in, our, uh, in our letter, is less than zero. And it has to be less than zero. And I want the American public to know that our, our nuclear weapons, uh, at least the ICBM leg of the triad, I can't speak for the bomber and, and, uh, and submarine leg because I don't have experience there, but at least the ICBM leg of the, of the triad is led by people who are dedicated to the mission and understand how to operate safe and securely every day. And that, that was point number one. Mm -hmm. and, if, and if I if I got nothing else out, then for people to understand, don't be afraid of our nuclear weapons. 
then, then I, I got the key point. A lot of other things that I wanted to get out, but, but that was the most important. And, and the second was, and, and, and you guys talked about this, and, and we can go into this in a little more detail. Yeah. Um, the second was, I read it as a challenge of the integrity of our ICBM, of our missile ears. Right. That we have guys, uh, a, a large number of people, uh, if I take it emotionally, that sit on alert every day going, gee, I wonder if I'll key turn if I get the message today. When in fact, there are probably a couple there, but that's why we have a redundant system to ensure that when the president directs the crew force to do their job, that the missileers will do their job, not question the elected official of the United States of America, mm -hmm. uh, but to do the job that they swore an oath to do, regardless of the devastation that it may cause. You know, did, did I go through the same training that you went through at Vandenberg? That you've talked about with a number of your podcasts and 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 get a good indoctrination about the capability of nuclear weapons and then have to sign a piece of paper that said I'm going to do a job. Yeah. Did I wrestle with that? Yeah. But then at that point, I never looked back while I was on alert, while I was doing my job. Can we have the conversations away from alert duty on whether nuclear weapons are good or bad or need to be pure or eliminated completely, you bet we can. And I don't know a guy in the Air Force who doesn't wanna have that discussion, but that's not the issue that we're presenting. The issue we're presenting is that when you go on alert, you swore an oath to defend, protect and defend the Constitution of the United States and to, uh, and, and to follow the orders that are, you've been given. And that means if you receive a verifiable, certifiable, accurate execution order, you got to do your job. You don't say, gee, I wonder if the president's competent, or I wonder if the president's got an ulterior motive, or gee, I don't want to kill that many people. At that time, and you just got to do your job. And I wanted to make that very clear. It, you know, Cole, Cole's statement bothered me in your podcast when he said, yeah, I drove on alert some days thinking about, you know, whether I could do this job. If he had that thought, he should have never gotten a truck to drive on alert. He should have gone to a squadron commander or as an ops officer and said, sir, I got a problem. Mm -hmm. And they would have respected that part of it and said, okay, let's take that aside. Let's take you off of, of, of PRP and let's talk about whether you want to stay in this career field, whether you can do the job or not, because we can't have you on alert questioning whether you can do the job. So, so let me let me push you a bit on on this point. There's a there's a couple places we'll go, but so so from a from a purely um, what's the right word? Maybe rational or operational perspective. It makes sense to say that if if a crew member is concerned that they won't, that they can't key turn or they won't be able to key turn should the order come, the commander's responsibility is to remove them from the alert or remove them from PRP, whatever the circumstance is, remove them from that situation and let's have a longer conversation. Right. And and I've I've had to do that. I've had to remove a guy from uh, certified 
uh, PRP certified duty because he didn't feel like he could do the job or he wasn't in a mental state where he could uh, without some conflict do his job. I've had to do that. By that individual's own volition, like they raised their hand and said, hey, sir, I've got an issue. I need to come off. Or did you do it unsolicited? Well, I've done both, actually. Okay. But, um, you know, sometimes you, you uh, and, and you understand the personal reliability program or whatever it's called today, um, you know, medications, you can't self-medicate and pull an alert. Right. Uh, if you have an emotional problem, you're in the middle of a divorce or you had a death in the family, the first thing we do is take you off PRP and, and let you go deal with your emotional, personal mm-hmm. issues so you don't have to worry about it while you're on crew, while you're on alert. We don't want people that are temporarily unstable uh, out there, you know, um, expected to do their job. It's a unique part of the Air Force uh, and nuclear weapons that we do this, but um, we want you to take the time to go get your head right so you can do the job. And, and, and any commander has had the opportunity to do that. So I think, so the argument, I, I think, at least for me, um, I was married throughout my time on crew. I did not have kids. I knew plenty of folks who did have kids, Omaha being one of them. You know, yep. and certainly if one of your kids is sick, my wife had surgery at one point and, and I had, in fact, at one point I thought, well, th- the circumstances changed to where th- there was some more complications. She came out of it just fine, but ultimately, you know, I needed some more time and I had an alert the next day and I had to call the commander on my own and say, um, this is going to be hard for me to deploy because like, you know, she's still recovering and she's got some issues going on and whatever we got to address them. And he, he suspended me on PRP. That was the terminology at the time. Um, gave me, I think, a week or so. That's really all we needed. And I think I deployed later on after that. I think the arguments or the, the the examples like if my spouse and I are having trouble, illness in the family, deaths in the family, certainly all of those things, those are all experiences the, the missileer listeners at least would have seen happen. Security forces maintenance being you know in the same boat by and large. But I'm, I'm curious to go back to if a crew member if a crew member raised their hand and said, Hey, I'm not sure I can do this. I'm not sure I can execute because for whatever reason, um, I've had a change of heart or I've thought more about it or whatever the case is. I, I, I don't, I think where I struggle is, you know, and, and I, over my period in the field, eight, eight or so years where I was in a CMR position, knew of crew members who had signed the paper in good faith. They meant it when they signed it. They got to the field. They learned more and more as, as all of us do. And as you get older and you come to appreciate more about what we're doing there at a strategic level, in some cases, they would stutter step and they would say, you know, I don't, this is, I don't know if I can do this anymore. What, what is your opinion? And, and I'm, and I'm trying to get you to extrapolate a bit i know you're not currently a commander you were one once in a different time but i'll just ask it this way i'm I'm trying to take the high road but it's kind of tough to ask the question i i think in a lot of cases and i'm making an assumption here but and i only saw it happen a couple of times firsthand a crew member who's genuinely in that place where 
they want to do right by the unit and their fellow crew members, but they are having doubts. They're just scared to say anything because they're afraid of what the consequences will be to them, to the crew members that now have to cover for them, to their career aspirations. Maybe they want to stay in the Air Force, but they don't want to get drummed out because, well, you signed a letter and now you're going back on it. Because I appreciate your response that says any commander should be willing to have that conversation. But I, I can hear in the back of my head, once again, crew members my age and older and younger who would say, no, that's not the case. My commander didn't want to hear that kind of crap. If I had said something like that, I would have been on the road to Perm Desert and out of the Air Force. For, for better or worse, that's the assumption. I think a lot of folks would, ha- would be afraid of that. So I guess what, what would you say to that or how do we, what would you say to that? I'll keep it simple. Well, I, I think you've, you've hit on the crux of leadership, haven't you? Um, you were in a squadron in the 320th and I heard you tell stories about this, about uh, how great the commander was and the ops officer and the flight commanders. I mean, you were, you were a team and you, and you felt like you were part of a, a family and, and you all took care of each other. Um, if we don't develop commanders, leaders, to be good commanders, then we're going to eat our young, and and we can't do that. Um, yeah, do I have a history of, I mean, I think in the end, I, I was a pretty good uh, boss, all, all the way till I retired. Uh, I, I like to think that, uh, you know, that I retired as a colonel, not an 06, if you understand the, the difference there. <laughs> yeah, I um, yeah. And, and, and I look back at when I was uh, uh, in a command position or a leadership position, uh, and, and I still have young guys that aren't young anymore, that were young to me then, uh, that, that I still stay in contact with that have never told me, you know, man, you, you, you know, you cut me off at the knees or anything like that, because that wasn't my style. And I, I think Good commanders make good examples, good leaders you don't have to be commanders because you don't have to be in a command position to be a leader. Right. Yeah. Uh, but but good leaders set good examples that continue. And guys like your commander in the 320th and uh, and some of my old squadron commanders and my 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 ops group commanders that I looked up to, they're the ones that gave me the the training and the mentorship to be a good leader. And I tried to in turn do that. And, and so in my organization, anybody could have come up to me and, not, and said, hey, hey, boss, I can't do it anymore. And they know, they knew that I would have fought to take care of them, not just kick them out of the Air Force. Even when I was an instructor at the 4315th at the schoolhouse back then, it's not, what's 532nd TRS. 532nd, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but... But back at the schoolhouse, and I had a I had a crew member halfway through training say, you know, the more I learn about this weapon system, I can't do it. We found him a job on base. We didn't kick him out of the Air Force. We ended up, you know, putting him in a different squadron, and and he, you know, he went off and had a career in the Air Force uh, because we we took care of him. So, is it a perfect world? No, uh, but you know, do we need to better train our leaders? Uh, to worry about people um, and, and not be uh, sledgehammers in every approach. Yeah, we do. Uh, but you do that through time and experience and mentorship. Um, 
and, and you just do your best to take care of people. I, I believe, and I have experience that, that, that when someone said they couldn't do the job, mm-hmm. uh, they, they stepped forward and they were taken care of. That, that, that's my time. I can't talk about 150 other leaders uh, over the years or how many other, you know, sure. I, I, you know, my experience, did I have bad leaders? Yeah. But, but my experience, we took care of our own and, uh, and, and we helped them out. It's just like a pilot being decertified because he's got a medical issue. Um, you know, the, to me, it's the same thing. You don't kick him out of the Air Force. You find a place for him because, you know, they, they've gotten that far. Now, if they do it in a negative fashion, then, you know, they're gone. If they, you know, what do they, you mean? Well, if they refuse an order or, 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 you know, start causing disruption or, you know, there, there are, there's a way to say, hey, boss, I can't do this okay. job. I see what you're saying. And, yeah. and, and a way to say, I am never doing this job and, and say it publicly. Right. Um, you know, again, our job is to build trust. And, and, and I don't mean me as the AAFM director, but, but as a missile leader at whatever rank. Part of your job is to build trust with the American public so they know that you're there to defend them. And, you know, airing your, uh, your, your negative stuff in a, in a public environment is a negative thing and doesn't do that. So what would you tell a crew member and, and not, and so I'm not trying to use Cole as this example, but a crew member who is having doubts, perhaps they are starting to think about the consequences um, I mean, thinking about consequences and what it would look like if and when we had to execute and what that world would become were conversations we tried to have, certainly in my Warren assignment, in the training environment, and we would try to play things out in an academic setting. So what would what would your advice be maybe to a crew member who is having doubts and maybe they come to you, let's say, as the executive director of AAFM, so you're not in the chain, you've got plenty of experience, but you're no longer on active duty. But to a crew member who says, I am scared shitless of bringing this back to my boss because for whatever reason, the environment is not the way you describe what it should be. What would you tell the crew member who is, and, and not even somebody who's saying, I can't do this. They're just like, I, I, I'm wrestling with this and I need to talk about it and I don't know what to do and I don't know who to ask. I think if I was that position, I'd, I'd help him find someone he could talk to. Uh, it doesn't have to be your immediate commander. You know, you can you can find someone on active duty that can help you through any problem. Um, but at some point, you're, you're going to have to own up to your concerns and your ability to do the job. Um, you know, whether it's your uh, your priest or your minister or you know some counseling person. Um, you know, you got to talk through it to, to live in a world where you can't talk about a problem, uh, only makes the problem worse. Right. So, uh, I mean, that, that was the world of the missileer when I, when I joined, right. That we, we were better at hiding problems and mistakes than we were about talking about them and and learning from them. And I am so sad to and disappointed to hear that, that you went through that because that, again, my experience is different. Sure. 
my my 27 years in missiles and my you know it was it was a very positive experience and and maybe that's why i'm such a strong advocate because i don't have any regrets or any negative um you know uh, well i mean i'll have we all have bad assignments but not enough to taint my time so sure nothing that speaks you know, for the it, community as a whole yeah yeah i mean you know when i was a crew member at ellsworth did i did i worry about um i, I was engaged i didn't get married till after i uh finished my 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 crew tour but was i worried about my fiance my girlfriend then my fiance and what would happen you know to her in the middle of a nuclear holocaust yeah i was but i had a job to do so i did my job you know what was it what was it about that time what was it about that time that's that's so different? I mean, I think it's easy for us. It's easy for folks in my generation. When I, well, I don't want to speak for the for people in my generation. When we were young and going through some of the things we went through at the at the squadron level, in some ways, I think it was easy to assume that that in the Cold War period, in pre nineteen ninety two, everyone just bought in because it was obvious. Um, and, and then, it, you know, some of us, then we started to speculate, right. The, the marriage with space command was, was kind of is what doomed our culture. And then in other cases, we just went through, a we, we riffed people, for instance, you mentioned 88, which I, I didn't, I would not have known about, but you, you know, as with any ebb and flow in manpower, you're going to have, perhaps you're, you've lost a bunch of leadership candidates and now you've got to pick from let's be honest, a strata of people you wouldn't have picked from otherwise. There's a whole host of variables that would change the world that you grew up in as a, as a missileer compared to the world that I grew up in. But can you point to anything? What is it about the community from your days, the positive things about the community that, that maybe we could, if, 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 it's not that there's, if it's not there now, something they could start working toward for... I mean, now and or for Sentinel in the next few years. Well, for, first, uh, your, your, our discussion about the RIF in 88, there was one in 77. I'm sure there was one in, you know, 64. Oh, you know, yeah. They happen. You know, right. It's not. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. The ebb and flow of, of, uh, of manpower in the Air Force. And uh, sometimes the economy uh, will, will force people to stay longer than they plan. Mm -hmm. uh, yep. And and then they got too many people. Um, but, you know, I, I, so part of the problem is that you have to look at the country in general and how things have changed, uh, you know, and, and, the, and the way we live day to day. I mean, I, I didn't grow up in a 24 seven news cycle. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I mean, I went to Rapid City, South Dakota. I knew nothing uh, about Rapid City before I got there. And there was no internet no Wikipedia to go look up or Google to go look up and see what was in, in uh, Rhapsody, South Dakota. So um, I, my generation to your generation, a lot has changed sure. and, and that, and that changes everything. But the bottom line is what we need to continue into Sentinel is that we are doing an important mission that there is a reason we have uh, 400 ICBMs on alert today. 
um, that we have trust in our national leadership that when, when, when it's needed, it will be used and it won't be used until it's needed. It's not a toy. It's, you know, it's a very dangerous and important weapon. And, and as long as you believe that, uh, if you have that faith in, in, in the American system and in, in our government, um, then I, I think the rest takes care of itself. I, I mean, I, I had a 27 year career where I only picked one assignment out of the 27 years and the Air Force took care of the rest and it worked out. Um, I, I think too many people worry about next assignment instead of worrying about excellence in their current assignment. So if, there, so if there's something I would, I would say to the young crew member, uh, just do your best. Be, be the best at what you do and people will recognize it and things will happen. Um, so I think we made a huge leap in the right direction of, of this second crew tour uh, of, of saying um, that being crew qualified is important all the way up to being a wing commander instead of just something you're going to do and get rid of. Mm -hmm. um, um, it's not universally popular, right? Not, Doing the second tour upwards no. of six years CMR no. at the squadron level is no. is to this day still a contentious subject, I think, among some people. Yep. And, and but, but, I, but I think if you wait 20 years, see, everybody always said, they said it way back in the 70s uh, and the 80s and the 90s and today, um, when you look back at the end and look back at that, that four years on crew, you realize it was the best time you ever had. Right. You don't realize it when you're doing it. Yeah. But trust me, the farther you get away from it, the better you remember it. Um, I, I think that uh, the the week the 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 week long alerts instead of the 24 hour alerts is going to turn out to be the best thing we ever did. Uh, it's tough on single uh, members, uh, but I was when I was up at. Uh, Effie Warren, I sat down and matter of fact, Lieutenant Colonel Rob Mack, I think he's the 319th commander, wrote an article mm -hmm. in our last newsletter about how it, what it took for the squadron to get there. But the benefits of being able to do more things as a squadron, to have a, a training week, an alert week, and an off week, and to plan your schedule. He knows if he wants to go buy uh, tickets for uh, a cruise or a trip to Hawaii or uh, a family wedding or something that's nine months away, he knows that he can plan on that based on today's alert schedule because it's pretty consistent from now on. We Which is the holy to. grail of missile scheduling, if, if you could ever get to that. Yeah, we never had. When, when I pulled an alert, I mean, our alert schedule came out on the 31st of March for one April alert. Oh, I'm going yep. to alert tomorrow. You know? That's, yeah. And, and, and you could pretty much guarantee that 30 days except for that stamp, standby alert you had. And that, you know, that messed your, your week up or your month up. But uh, all of those things are good things that make alerts better. Uh, the whiskey, uh, the whole thing with the whiskeys uh, and the uh, weapons school grads uh, and how they're getting involved in tactics and planning and, and making the crew force a smarter crew force today those are all good things that we didn't have. And that's why I'm excited about the future of the crew force because I see leaders listening and trying to make changes which were unheard of 
20 years ago. So let me, I'm going to turn it back to Cole's piece and just hit on a couple of items that he he speaks to and, and just ask you directly, both in your position as AAFM director and an experienced missile leader generally. Um, and and so, so I ask this, and I'm, I'm going to ask you some questions here that are going to certainly to you sound elementary, but this is for the broadest audience possible. Certainly anybody who's listening who's not a missile or um, not a military person. Why do we still need nuclear weapons, generally speaking? So not necessarily the, all three legs of the triad. I'll get to that one. But why do we need nuclear weapons today? Um, and, and in particular today, Sunday, April 10th, where we've now watched Russia, Ukraine at war with each other for about a month and a half. Um, and as we spin up NATO forces in some ways for the first time since NATO's inception, not everybody's convinced that even having the nuclear deterrent appears to matter because the Russians are on the march. That is, that is an argument that if you would, I'd like you to respond to. Why do we need these weapons? Are they still valuable despite what we're watching happening now? Yeah, I think you have to um, you have to look at the Russian-Ukraine situation and, and dissect it into a couple pieces. Uh, for for since the beginning of of, of uh, nuclear weapons after World War II, when when the Cold War started, um, you know we always heard that the the, the Russian the, the Soviet president would wake up in the morning and look at his forces and look at our forces and say, can't win it today. Uh, Reagan was certainly uh, in that mode of, of always pushing Gorbachev and, and Yeltsin to understand that you can't launch against us because we're, you know, we're gonna come back uh, with, a bit, with a better force, a more capable force, a more accurate force, um, and you're gonna pay the price. Um, it's still the same today. The, the problem is that now China is developing uh, long range. South, uh, North Korea is developing uh, long range missiles. Uh, Pakistan, uh, uh, Iran, they're, I mean, they're, do we, need to, do we need to stop the proliferation of nuclear weapons? Yes. Do we stop it by stopping our investment and saying, you know, we trust you guys, we're gonna lower our numbers, lower our shield, uh, you know, show that we, we, we trust you. That, that's not the answer. We need to maintain a strong, capable force that everybody understands if you come after the United States, we have the capability to retaliate, to survive and retaliate. We can work separately to get to a global zero, but we can't do it from a, a position of weakness. We have to do it from a position of strength. And if you understand the Soviet, the Russian, and the Chinese mentality, and even the North Korean mentality, uh, although it's hard to understand that guy. Never put, yeah. Uh, right. but, but if, 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 you, if you study those and understand their thought process, you know that we have to be strong, that we will not convince them to, to reduce their number of weapons if we're the, the weakest in that link. Reagan proved that 
in uh, with with the the Glickums. He proved it. He broke the Soviets back, and uh, and 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 they, you know, they they reduced their number of weapons. We got the the START treaty, the SALT treaty, and the START one and START two. We got all those because they knew we were strong. That's the bottom line. What justifies? Go ahead. NATO, sorry. That's a whole different issue. Whether you know whether NATO acts as a pact to uh, support um, all of its its uh, its countries in the article uh, articles that are written, time will tell. But you know, Putin has 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 barked about launching nuclear weapons, and he may launch tactical nuclear weapons. But I think he's smart enough to know that that with our submarines and ICBMs on alert, the consequences would would be the end of him, and he's just not ready to do that. Is it justifiable as we as we work on maintaining our current force and modernizing it? Is it justifiable then for the United States to continue talking about nonproliferation? even as we continue to modernize and, and as we maintain and underwrite the NATO alliance with that force? What justifies that position? Well, we've proven over history that, that uh, we're a country of our word and, and that when we go into a treaty and reduce the number of, of weapons and delivery vehicles, that we honor those treaties. As I said earlier, we, I started 1974 with 1,054 missiles on alert. Now we have 400 on alert. Uh, we took our bombers off alert. We got rid of Peacekeeper. We got rid of, of, of Glickham. Um, we, we have fewer, uh, fewer warheads on top of missiles. We have fewer, I can't speak to the Navy, but I believe we probably have uh, you know, fewer missiles in, uh, deployed in, in submarines. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we're working towards that reduction but we only can work as fast as other nations are willing to go. And so, you know, someone could come in and propose, hey, let's go to 300 ICBMs. I'm okay with that as a first step, only if the Russians and the Chinese make the same decrement in theirs, and they're not willing to do that yet. They're, they're building up. They're modernizing faster than we are. And, and that's why I support Sentinel and, and the, uh, uh, Columbia class submarine, mm -hmm. because we have to stay as strong as our enemies are. And they are still our enemies. As much as we like to think we're one world and everything's happy for lucky, they, they still uh, are against the American way of life. So is, so, and you, you started to talk to this two-part question next, is Global Zero possible? And what would it take? What would it take in your mind, or what conditions would have to transpire to take those first one, two, or three steps to start? I, I won't ask unless you'd like to. I won't ask you to to describe how you think it could end at global zero. But is it possible? And what would it take to start? Well, I've learned in my life anything's possible. Uh, I, I mean. I, I, I never I never thought when I started as a missileer that we'd be as uh, small of a footprint as we are today. So I, I've learned it, it's all possible. Um, 
can we get to global zero? I think there's a lot of other countries that would have to be willing to get there um, at the same time. And I know our current president, uh, you know, is has got a lot of people whispering in his ear, trying to tell him to go there, and you know, and he's probably listening to him. He wants, um, you know, a safer world to live in, which means fewer nuclear weapons. Um, is is Russia and China willing to go to zero? Is North Korea willing to go to zero? Is Iran willing to go to zero? That's what treaties are all about. That's where that's where the State Department comes in, and that's why you have. The State Department, and this goes to one of Cole's comments about leaders in the Air Force don't want to get get rid of nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. No, leaders in the Air Force want to have the forces ready to to meet the commander in chief's requirements, whatever that happens to be. If you tell a leader in the Air Force we're going to, you know, we're going to cut out, um, you know, aircraft or uh, ships in the Navy. Yes, sir. We'll put a plan together and make it happen. Uh, you know, we're gonna we're gonna draw our forces out of Europe. Yes, sir. We'll put a plan together and make it happen. We we do that. It's the civilian part of our government, State Department, and others that then are charged with going in and negotiating with um, you know other countries to to reach those agreements, which we will then honor as much as they honor them. So, I mean, to me, that's, that's the step. The step is in, in the hands of, of, uh, of, of the State Department and other agencies to, to go negotiate weapons down to zero, but do it in a sense that we're not, uh, we're not stepping out in a leap of faith because I just don't have the faith that the other guys would do it. Um, that, you know, you do it first and then we'll follow. You, know, yeah. you jump off the bridge, I'll jump off after. No, no, I mean, come on, we're not stupid. Unilateral disarmament is, is dead on arrival in your mind, right? For us to attempt to be that first example. Yeah, we're never going to get to it overnight. We're never going to get to it by saying, okay, tomorrow we're going to take all of our weapons off of where it trusts us mm-hmm. uh, and then wait, see what happens. No, that's not going to happen. In my, opinion, my personal opinion. Sure, yeah. So I want to pick up on something. Now, I can see the, the headline tomorrow, you know, uh, in the Guardian, a- okay. AFM executive director says we'll never get to to uh, to ground zero to zero weapons. Uh, yeah. That's not what I'm saying at all. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. If 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 only my listenership included some editor at the Guardian who could write that headline. Yeah. Um, so I want to. I do want to pick up on something you said, and I and I don't want this. This isn't intended to be. Well, this isn't a Guardian interview or any other media interview per se. So I, this is not a. A gotcha question, but I, I want to ask you to elaborate on something you said. You seemed to equate a safer world with a world that had fewer nuclear weapons. Right? Do, do we want to live in a safer world? Sure. And that would mean a world with fewer nuclear weapons. So I want to ask you to, to expand on that or, or perhaps, you know, and, and, and some of you out there listening to this may say this is, this is unfair. Give you a chance, sir, to, to, phrase that differently because because i think that is a that's another argument that you would get that i have heard before and that is and that comes up um if implicitly in cole's piece is that a world with nuclear weapons particularly weapons on alert not every nuclear armed country maintains them on alert necessarily but certainly our country the russians we know um 
a a world with nuclear weapons on alert is by definition this is the argument less safe than a world where let's say everyone signs on to a no first use policy or following that everyone eventually signs on to a global zero type treaty is it the case that a safer world is a world without nuclear weapons or is there some piece is there some amount of safety we actually do get from these weapons you know even though as you say that they are on their own a, a dangerous and very powerful instrument they're designed to be i think that's a mixed bag um we have weapons on work today because we have enemies that um, could, because we have enemies, okay? Um, the, the, you know, I, when I was in, uh, in, in Space Command, we had a patch, I've uh, gotten my, my shadow box up here that said, uh, um, and, and it, it came from a comment made by uh, Chief Staff to the Air Force that said, uh, our ICBM uh, force provides the umbrella for the, uh, the AEF to operate freely around the world because it's a, again, a position of strength. Um, so we will need weapons until no one has weapons. Does that mean uh, nuclear zero? I, I worry more today about a a, a tactical suitcase nuclear weapon than I worry about us firing uh, an ICBM uh, across the other side of the world. Um, and, and that's because the, that countries like Iran that are developing the capability uh, don't have the distance and so they need another way to use it. And they're crazy enough to use it in my personal opinion. Does that make sense? Iran is crazy enough, or you mean our enemies yeah. generally are crazy? Okay. But in well, particular, their case. In, in particular, And potentially case, others. Yeah. 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 I just read a story this morning in, in the paper talking about their continuing work on their civilian nuclear program, um, which I think everybody, at least that I know, uh, believes that that's, that's really just a cover for what is eventual development, if not already current development of an atomic weapons program. Right. It may only be a matter of time. Um, okay, so we're coming up on two hours, and I and I realize, you know, I also hear the family upstairs getting ready for dinner. But I do have a couple more questions, um, and I'll go ahead and tell you as this conversation progresses. I have, I have others that I'm I'm going to have on, and I, and there's a couple of uh, former ops officer and, and folks from the units that um, I want to talk to on and offline. To keep the conversation going, because I think one of the other keys, one of the other things that Cole brought up in our conversation, and that I think about as a former instructor too, is how how do you have this type of conversation? How do you have the strategic level conversation with a crew force in such a way that it's not distracting, but it's enabling to them, so that as they become leaders in the force, for those that want to stay in the Air Force and they build a career and they become ADOs, DOs, commanders, et cetera, they are intellectually equipped to continue this moving forward because that's, that is yet again, another thing we lacked when I first started is those that had the conversation, they kind of had to find ways to do it because by and large, we were just told, go to the field, 
do what we tell you to do. Yeah. Don't ask questions. Right. And, and yeah. not to beat that dead horse, but that's the world we grew or I grew up in at least. Um, and, and it has changed for the better in a lot of ways. All right. A couple more questions. If you would, uh, I asked you why nuclear weapons now a little bit more of a softball, perhaps why ICBMs in particular, why should we maintain that leg of the triad as opposed to, as opposed to say entertaining one of the counter arguments that I think is most common, which is to say ICBMs are, I will leave the hair trigger piece off the table for a minute. ICBMs are fastest to respond and they are not recallable post-launch. Ergo, they are destabilizing by their nature. Why maintain the ICBM triad, let alone modernize it? Well, a couple good, that's a good question. And, and I'll start with the fact that, that uh, um, we have, 400 silos on alert today spread across the, um, the northern part of, of the United States. Every one of those is an aim point for our enemy. And if any one of those is hit, it's a very obvious attack on this country. Um, but we can survive it. There are, I, I think I've read this in a couple articles, um, there are about eight strategic points in the United States that are uh, bomber bases, command centers, submarine bases, that if you hit those, basically decapitate two legs of the triad. But you have to put your entire uh, long range force against ICBMs to do the same thing. So we're the survivable leg. I mean, they. The Navy says the submarines are the most survivable because they're undetectable, but you know, within X number of years, we're gonna have technology that can find submarines. Um, and, and a submarine can disappear like that from an attack and nobody knows it. But if you hit an ICBM silo in the middle of North Dakota, everybody's gonna know it. So for those reasons, uh, we're very accurate, very survivable, um, very visible, um, and, and that's, that's why we need ICBMs. Do you think, so at the, at the risk of going tribal, why all three legs of the triad, or, or do you think, and, and I, for one person, or I, for one, I should say, have considered and have gone back and forth with, with bomber pilots and my brothers and sisters in the B-52 community, um, not as much in the B-2, but in the B-52 community about whether the bomber leg still makes sense to maintain, specifically because most of those crew members have to be dual qualified. And that's a, from a personnel training operation standpoint, a stressor on our B-52 squadrons. Why would you say we need to maintain all three legs? Or, or if you don't think we do, how do we move forward and, and what does that mean for the future? Well, every, every leg of the triad brings a different uh, purpose and, and mission and everyone brings an inherent uh, risk. Um, the, the bomber leg of the triad was our most recallable. Uh, you know, it was manned, they could, they could launch 
and and go to the go to the end line and turn back. Um, but once they launched their missiles, they were no more recoverable than uh, uh, than ICBMs or submarines. So they all have that execution point. The problem with with uh, with the aircraft leg and and the one that if we were gonna if we were gonna downsize would be the first one I would give up. Sorry to you know <laughs> my a, aircraft brothers in the strategic world. That kind of opened the door uh, for it. Yeah, that's. But but when the president took them off alert in uh, you know back in in whatever year what that was ninety one. Not uh, yeah ninety one. Yeah, when he took them off alert ninety one. Now putting them back on alert is a provocative move. Okay, mm-hmm. and. And is a president willing to make that, um, that, that almost gets back to the Cuban Missile Crisis and Kennedy declaring the first ICBM on alert. If you put bombers back on alert, you're making that same statement. You by are, itself, it's a message, right? By, by itself is a message. And, yeah. and I, I just don't think, I, I hope we never get to that point that we ever have to put a bomber back on alert. The submarines, they're off there quietly doing their stuff, and you know their their main their their main mission is to be undetectable and survivable. Um, and, and I think they do a great job at that. Um, but their weakness is, if if if, they, if a if a sub was sunk, we wouldn't know it for a while. So. So you so you mean if it was sunk by a fast attack, for instance, by an enemy fast attack below the surface. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Not to a surface strike, but to, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so for, for crew members on alert now or who are alert certified and who are at the wings now, what, what would you say to them? And especially those who wonder, and I remember crew members wondering this when I was young and I remember crew members of mine who we trained, who wondered this. So I'll make the assumption that there's still some of them out there now. Who, who wonder what it's worth doing all this work, deploying every few weeks, whatever the tempo is, to a, to a capability and a weapon system that, for the most part, we hope never to use in combat. How do you, how do you keep your chin up and, and keep yourself motivated to do something like that? Well, it's, it's simple. Um... The fact is we use it every day in deterrence of our enemies. As I said earlier, the, the Russian president gets up every morning and looks across the, the, the globe and says, uh, if I go after them, they're gonna come back and, and annihilate this country. Uh, so I can't do it today. Uh, he may wake up one day and go, you know, I've read reports that says the ICBM's uh, falling apart and it can't be trusted. And I can hit them and they can't hit me back. We don't ever want to get to that point. But our crew members are doing a job every day. Not firing their weapon is as much uh, an important job as having to turn keys and fire a weapon when the president decides. We are a strong and reliable nuclear deterrent force that plays an important role. Uh, Just read the last nuclear posture review. the previous one, the one that's about ready to come out, um, it, it plays an important role. It, it allows our U.S. forces to operate freely around the world, and that's our job. 
we do it every day and we do it without question and we do it without fail. And, uh, and I'm proud of those guys um, that are pulling those alerts today because they're protecting us every day. No hands down. Okay, so I think I'll, I'll make this one the last one. Um, and so I'll, I'll ask you for a pitch. We talked earlier, you asked me before I hit record uh, whether I was an AAFM member. And so for the benefit of the audience, I'll say I was in my first year after leaving active duty. Um, and then I let my membership lapse. And the, the short version of my longer answer I gave you was I, I wasn't really sure what was there at what was there for someone like me who is still relatively fresh off the boat. Um, I, I certainly like to think I could be an advocate, but I don't really know what AF, AAFM does for the, the more recent generations. That's a really vague way of putting it. So that's a good question. You know, yeah. but, but why, why AAFM, what is it about the organization that you think remains valuable to the current crew force and to let's say the, the, the recent alumni, the last 10 to 15 years worth of individuals who have come off alert and come out of the air force, let's say, why join, um, and what what should crew members expect from the organization as time goes on? Well, we need you to join because we need to stay relevant. We need your support. Um, we don't want to be a bunch of old guys like me. We have we have plenty of younger people, but I sure. use me as an example uh, who've been out of the Air Force for twenty plus years, uh, sitting around reminiscing about how good it was uh, when we were in ICBMs, when we were in Minuteman Two, in my case. Minuteman Three, Peacekeeper, you know, all of that, click mm -hmm. them. Um, we're a 5013C dedicated to the heritage of ICBMs, educating the public and keeping missileers informed about what's going on today. In the last year, we've changed a lot in the way we approach things. Um, we need to stay in contact with our current ICBM force as much as we, uh, our current missileers, as much as we need to maintain contact with our retired missileers. It's, it's one part history and one part currency and one part advocacy uh, and a whole bunch of other parts. Um, we have an active scholarship program going on today that, uh, that gets money in pockets of young airmen who don't have enough money in the, uh, in the, the GI Bill equivalent uh, to pay for all of their education expenses. We have a museum program to uh, help uh, missile exhibits around the country so the American public can go see things like Delta One uh, in South wow. Dakota uh, or Oscar Zero in, in North Dakota or um, uh, Quebec One in, in Cheyenne, Wyoming. I only use those as three examples of, of of active launch centers and, and LFs where American public can see the mission of ICBMs. Um, so that's why I want you to join. I want you to join so that, so that uh, we're constantly reminded of, of the issues that need to be addressed and we continue to be an advocate for the guys that are on alert today, the guys who just came off a crew five years ago and the guys that have been doing it for 50 plus years. So for a so for a current crew member or a recent a, a recent uh, what's the right word separatee or even recent retiree I suppose 
what, what is the role for them? I, I think staying connected to the crew force makes sense. Um, certainly, hopefully, membership dues help, and then additional donations help the mission, the scholarship portion, which I, I did not know about. So that's a, that's a good thing. The museum program, potentially other outreach programs that come up. But what is the role for the young crew member? And to ask it more selfishly, what would be in it for them? Like, what does the what does the organization provide them? Maybe that that is a you know that is an incentive to stay connected with this group. Well, to start with, it it does keep you connected with uh, with with other missileers. Um, I, I think. The benefit is whatever you want to get out of it. it you, whatever you put into it, uh, you're going to get more out of it. Um, we've gone from a, a quarterly newsletter to we reduce it down to three newsletters and and monthly email blasts that go out with current things of what's going on uh, around the missile career field. Um, information on, on uh, the, the whiskey program, information on uh, you know, the, 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 the change in the alert uh, uh, requirements. Um, uh, we hope to do more feature articles on, on people in the missile field and what's going on today. Um, I'd love to provide uh, a monthly uh, uh, news article email blast that you can look at and go, oh, I didn't know Bill was doing that, or I didn't know they changed that. So you stay current. So when your friends in Ohio uh, ask you a question about ICBMs, you can say more than, well, you know, when I was on crew, this is right. what happened. You can say, today, uh, we are uh, X number of years away from deploying the Sentinel. And, and you knew that because you got it in our, our, our communications or you found it on our website, right. uh, not because you read it in the New York Times or someplace like that. So then by extension, yeah, you, you are growing the list of advocates too across the spectrum um, and I across want people, the age yeah. groups. Yeah. Yep. I, I, I'd love to have guys like you go out to speak to local high schools, uh, ROTC detachments at universities. Rotary clubs, whatever it happens to be, and speak about your time as a missileer and share the fact that we have missiles on alert today. You'd be surprised how many Americans don't even know we have ICBMs on alert. They thought we got rid of them with the Cold War. Yeah, I ran into airmen at Minot who didn't know we had missiles on alert <laughs> on the bomb wing side. Just, but, but to your point, yeah, there are there are many Americans who would have no reason necessarily to pay attention, but wouldn't realize until maybe the last few weeks with with all the news for after russia um that the weapons even were still there yeah that's true yeah. well so it's been uh it's been an awesome conversation i really appreciate you joining me you, you said yes pretty quickly it only took us a couple of days to find a time um and i know i'll, I'll want to talk with you again certainly to, to follow the developments of of the sentinel as we bring it online in the next five to six years potentially, which is, um, I don't know, I think in the grand scheme of things, pretty fast considering everything else we're trying to do. It is. New yeah. bomber, new submarine, new ICBM on top of, by the way, all the other systems and all the other military branches we have to maintain. Any last thoughts, anything else that's come to mind, anything else you'd like to say before we uh, stop? Well, when you here? talk about bomber, submarine, 
the ICBM is, is the last leg to really get uh, revitalized. Yeah. And, and, and for those who say, well, why are we even doing it? I saw a great story on Facebook the other day. Uh, they were talking about the Ohio class and, and replacing it with Columbia. And the guy said, um, take a 50 year old and have him go downtown and walk up uh, three flights of stairs and then ask him if he's out of breath and ready to do his job. The answer is <laughs> probably not. So, you know, we can't expect a, a, a 1970 uh, Ford Mustang to be as capable as a 2021 Ford Mustang. So our, our need to revitalize our force, all three legs of the triad is important. I, I, I thank you for the invite. Um, I, I learned a lot by listening to your podcast uh, and, and hearing Cole's perspective. I think these conversations are important and I welcome the opportunity to continue. Awesome. Well, I, I appreciate that. Um, you know, and for, for listeners out there, certainly if you have feedback or questions for me, send them my way. There are plenty of questions that I, that I would have had um, or that I had that I would have asked. I definitely wanted to get to the Cole Smith article and to that perspective and really to just get some history because if nothing else, right, the, the context of your career and some of the milestones you lived through in terms of world history are, are, are important to hear from, regardless of whether we agree or disagree on your perspective of how we should do things now. Uh, one more quick thing I sure, should have yeah. said, if you want more on, uh, on our organization, yeah. our website is uh, afmissileers.org, or you can send me an email directly at director at afmissileers.org, and I, I'd love to hear from all of you. Membership is really inexpensive, 20 bucks a year. Uh, it, it was that way when we started in 1993 and it hasn't changed a bit. So uh, I welcome everybody to join. Our enlisted force membership is free. Our active duty enlisted force. Our officers, as you mentioned, $5 a year. That I mean, come on guys. Um, uh, join a great organization and help us stay connected and, and, and teach the American public about what we're all about. So you said, so to, so to be clear for active duty enlisted members, free. Right. Active duty officers. So crew member, missile maintenance officers, uh, $5 a year. Yep. And then you said one that was $20. Is that post-career? Post-career. The, post the, okay. the, the rest of us. The regular people, right? All the civilian types. Okay. Non-uniform okay. wearing people. Yeah, compared to some organizations, certainly a, a lot less money and a lot less out of the pocketbook every year um, to support the organization and the mission. Okay, uh, anything else? That's it. Thank okay. you very much. Thank you very much. It's great talking with you. Hopefully you can get some time outside, perhaps if you want, out in the Florida sun. Um, I know for us, I think we'll we'll do dinner with the kids and maybe enjoy some time outside. 50 degrees for us is is warm and toasty, so... And we still remember the days in Minot. So, you know, I'll take it. There you go. All right, sir. Take care. We'll talk to you soon, hopefully. All right. Thanks All a right. lot. Yep. Bye. All right. Mr. Warner has left the Zoom room. Uh, we went for over two hours. Covered a lot of ground, I think. Uh, hopefully, for those of you that listened to the episode with Cole Smith, um, I did at least some of of Cole's points justice, trying to get Mr. Warner just to answer to those points. He seemed uh, wide open with his willingness to, to talk about it. Um, he was open for the conversation and had told me prior to starting, nothing was off limits. And so, you know, we, we certainly jumped into a couple of rabbit holes. 
I am still a nerd at heart and a missile nerd and a history nerd at heart. So, um, you know, I, there's plenty more that I'm curious about to talk with somebody who lived through the periods he lived through. There's plenty there. But to return it to the conversation at hand, um, it is important to have these to talk about this stuff. And what we what we really didn't talk to much and what we didn't get to as much is how do you how do you have these conversations intelligently with crew members from the start so that they are intellectually equipped to take on the leadership positions that they will take on in five years, 10 years, 15, 20 years time. And and how do you, you know, now that we know, and of course we won't hold him to this, but let's say Sentinel is initially capable in five or six years, right? So for crew members who are CMR now in their second crew tour, let's say, who might be among the first um, ADOs, let's say, or senior flight commanders supporting a Sentinel flight, Sentinel squadron, and then eventually a Sentinel wing. How do you have the kinds of conversations you should have now to equip them with a strategic and operational perspective that they can take into that new role when now they not only have to understand ICBMs as a as a construct as a concept, but now they have to apply it to a weapon system that is brand new on the world stage, right? That we we will build a testing regime for just like we did for Minuteman, and and I have no doubt. I'm I'm not in a decision making position, of course, but I have no doubt that we will test Sentinel unarmed Sentinel missiles just like we've been testing Minuteman missiles for years. We have methods in place right now to make sure the world understands this weapon system is still capable. But to build all of that, it's going to require a, a cadre of crew members, young and old, who can have these conversations and who can talk, yes, philosophically about what we're doing here and why, and, and why we are modernizing a weapon system that many people think is not only obsolete, but destabilizing. Whether you agree or disagree with that, it is a conversation we have to continue having because there is an argument, a reasoned argument to make that removing a leg of the triad, particularly the ICBM leg, um, would certainly change the dynamic. Now, I am not making that argument necessarily. I appreciate Mr. Warner answering to that argument. Um, along with the other questions I had for him. He was willing to give me plenty of time, and he certainly did that. So uh, to Mr. Warner, again, I thank you very much for the time. Um, and I, I definitely will want to have you back on at some point in the future, uh, you know, perhaps as we hit another milestone in the Sentinel program or, or as the news unfolds and as history unfolds while we watch the Russians now bog down in Ukraine, perhaps we'll be able to talk about that in the future as well. All right, I'm not going to take up any more of your time with this outro. Um, I hope you enjoyed the episode. I hope you got something out of it. Whether you are a missileer or not, whether you are part of the part of the initiated or not, um, if this is your first episode, you picked a hell of a one to start with, um, go back and listen to the Cole Smith interview at least so you have a bit more context. Uh, I will um, try to put the links to Cole Smith's article once again in the supporting blog post for this. 
and then the link to afmissileers.org so that you can look into what the AAFM is, what they do, what they have to offer, particularly if you are a missileer, and that includes operations, maintenance, and I believe security forces. I didn't confirm that with him on the air, but um, I think anyone who's attached to the ICBM mission, certainly check out afmissileers.org and um, learn what you can there. And if it is appropriate for you to join, feel free to join. I, I'll go ahead and pitch that even though I let my membership lapse. Okay. Any feedback, any questions, any comments, please send them my way. Um, this is one of those conversations that I, I absolutely am invested in keeping on um, on the forefront of people's minds. And uh, regardless of what you think about nuclear weapons, they are here. Other countries have them. And the simple fact that they remain on the table as a military option means that we should continue to, to think about what they mean, what we do with them, and how to maintain them safely going forward, maintain their capability, and at the same time, work for a safer world. Hopefully, we're doing that one day, one conversation at a time. Okay. Thanks a lot for listening. I appreciate each and every one of you. I appreciate it, especially if uh, you find what we're doing here, what I'm doing here of interest. Share the episode. Let me know what you think. Find me on social media if you'd like to connect. And until next time, take care, stay safe. We'll talk to you soon.